Good morning. Happy New Year, everyone. Look, I know it's New Year's, but surely you can give me a little bit better than that. I said, good morning. There we go, starting 2023 off right. Whether you're joining us on campus or online, we are so glad that you have chosen to start 2023 off by worshiping with us this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kayla Harden. I serve as the pastor of Congregational Connections here at Eastside. And we're not just starting off a new year this morning, we're also kicking off a new sermon series called More Than a Story. Now, we as a people, we love stories, right? We love to hear a good story. We love to see a good story in a movie, to read it in a book. I mean, that's why the U.S. movie industry in 2022, it was worth $95.45 billion. And in 2020, the U.S. book industry, it generated over $25 billion because we love stories. A good story captivates our imagination. It takes us to places that we maybe haven't been before. And I think that's why Jesus understood the power of a good story. That's why he used them so often. He would tell these narratives, these stories, what we would call parables, to teach us these these eternal truths, to speak something into our lives that we might not have realized before, that the Holy Spirit reveals something about us, about ourselves, about our hearts that we might not have even been aware of. And so over the next few weeks, we will be exploring these stories in our series called More Than a Story. Now to get us started this morning, I'm going to tell you a story of my own. About 11 years ago, my husband and I were about to celebrate our first anniversary. So we decided we were going to take a trip down to Gatlinburg and spend the weekend down there. And now although GPS and smartphones did exist back then, we couldn't afford them. And so we used this ancient technology called MapQuest. And you see, if you don't know MapQuest, you would plug in the address of where you started, the address of where you were going, the computer would then generate directions and a map for you to follow, and then we printed it on paper. I know, archaic, right? So we had our directions in hand, we hopped in the car, we packed up our bags, and we began to head down to Gatlinburg. Now, unfortunately, at this point, there were a lot of storms brewing. In fact, for most of our drive, we were about 20 minutes ahead of a series of tornadoes that were going through Kentucky and southern Indiana. And as we started making our way, we felt really good that we had been able to dodge all of these storms along the way. But then, when we arrived in Tennessee, we arrived in Knoxville, tragedy struck. As we arrived, we realized that the map we were following wasn't correct. The directions that we were following led us to a street that dead end. And so at that moment, I felt that we were lost. And although to this day, my husband will not admit that we were lost, according to him, he knew exactly where we were and where we were going. But to me, we were lost. And then to make matters worse, that storm we had been dodging, it finally caught up with us. Rain began to pour down as the wind picked up. We're on winding roads that we don't recognize, and it's nighttime, in the dark, in the rain, and we're lost. And then I look out and I see that houses that are nearby, they've lost power. The streetlights along the road also lost power. I was convinced that we were going to die. But you know what, I'd made it through a year of marriage, that's longer than most celebrities, so I felt like that was an achievement. (laughs) Thankfully, my husband was able to maneuver us to where we needed to go. 
But I will never forget that feeling, that feeling of being lost, of not knowing where I was or where I was going. And unfortunately, so many people walk around their daily lives feeling lost. Like I was, they don't know where they are. They don't know where they're going. Sometimes, sometimes we do, we think we know where we're going. We think that we have it all figured out. We have like this map, this idea of what our life should look like. Maybe for some of us it's that American dream, you know? The big house with the picket fence and the porch, the American average 2.5 kids and the dog that doesn't shed. But then all it takes is losing our job, struggling to be able to pay our bills, and we find ourselves feeling lost. Maybe for others of us, it's our relationships. Maybe we have that map that we're working off of to find that perfect someone to settle down and have those 2.5 kids. Or we have this idea of what our relationships with our family members should look like, where we all get along and enjoy each other's company, and yet we find ourselves sitting at a tense Christmas dinner or having relatives that are estranged and won't even talk to us. Maybe for some of us, it's this map of figuring out who we are. We're following this map to, to find our identity, to figure out our place in this world, to find meaning or pleasure or belonging. The world is full of maps, each one calling us to follow it. But the sad truth is, these maps end up leaving us feeling lost. They may promise that we'll feel found, but the reality is we're driving through a curvy road in the dark with a tornado sneaking up on us. So what are we supposed to do? How do we stop feeling so lost? Thankfully, Jesus tells three stories about things that were lost and then found to help us understand what we can do when we feel lost. Our stories this morning come from Luke chapter 15. And this takes place in the midst of Jesus' ministry as a crowd has gathered around him. And he looks to the crowd and he sees a mix of the tax collectors, the sinners, the rejects of society, and then also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the righteous people. And as he looks amongst the crowd, he hears the religious people whispering to each other. Look at this crowd, whispers one. Disgusting. I know. He surrounds himself with sinners, whispers another. I wouldn't be caught dead eating with these people. Jesus slowly stood up, faced the crowd. Silence soon enveloped them as they listened to every word he had to say. Which one of you, having 100 sheep and then one that gets lost, wouldn't leave your herd behind to go find it? Wouldn't you leave the 99 to search after that one lost sheep? And then... When you find that lost sheep, you lay down the weight of worry to pick up the weight of that sheep and go back. And then you call together your friends saying, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. It's that kind of celebrating, Jesus said, that takes place every time one sinner repents. In fact, in heaven, there is more joy over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus paused, looking at the sinners, the outcasts, as they had smiles growing on their faces, and then turning to the religious as they scowled and frowned. Or what woman, he continued, 
who has 10 precious silver coins, a drachma worth one whole day's wage. When she loses one, doesn't turn her house upside down. Like a mother whose toddler has lost their favorite stuffed animal, doesn't light a lamp and move the furniture trying to find it. Who takes the broom and sweeps between the stone floor, straining her ears, listening for a slight jingle. And then, she, after searching diligently, when she finds it, she calls to her neighbors to join her and celebrate. Rejoice with me, she says. I finally found it. I found my lost coin. Just so, Jesus said, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, Jesus said. Smiles with the tax collectors, the sinners, the rejects. Oh, how they grew hearing this. But then the righteous had their frowns deepening, fists clenched, eyes narrowing. But Jesus continued, taking it to another level. He began a story of a father who had two sons. And one day, the youngest son came to his father and said, Hey, Dad, you know how when you die, I'm going to inherit part of your stuff? Well, you see, here's the thing. I don't really want to wait, so you should just give me my inheritance now so I can go and live life how I want to live it. His father was brokenhearted. You see, by saying this, by asking for his inheritance, the son was basically telling his dad, you're as good as dead to me. But the father Brokenhearted as he was, he still divvied up his possessions. You see, in this culture, the oldest son would receive twice the inheritance of any other son. So a man who had two sons, two-thirds of his possessions would go to his oldest son, and one-third would go to his youngest. And so the father gave his son the one-third of his possessions. The son liquidated his assets, he packed his bag, and he headed out to a foreign land, leaving his father, his home, his brother behind while he was there, he lived the life. He stayed in the nicest places. He ate the nicest foods. He hung out with high-class people. I imagine that scene from Home Alone 2 when Macaulay Culkin is staying in the Plaza Hotel in New York, how he's ordering these giant ice cream sundaes and anything else that he wants. He's taking pizza in a limousine like this is the younger son. He is spending his money on anything and everything he wants. But, as you can imagine, the money eventually ran out. And to make things even worse, a famine hit the land, making food scarce. All those friends that he had when he had money, well, they abandoned him as soon as he couldn't afford to buy the next round. He was alone and out of options. He ended up taking a job one of the lowest jobs of feeding pigs. Now, to Jesus' Jewish audience, this would have been appalling. Pigs were unclean. This was the worst of the worst kind of jobs that anyone could take. And here he was, feeding pigs. And his hunger was so much that he looked at the nutritionless pods the pigs were being fed. He was looking at their slop, and he was longing to eat it. But that hunger wasn't even the worst part. It was the loneliness. He was in a foreign land. 
No friends, no family, no options. He was hungry. He was lonely. He was destitute. He was lost. But finally, he was able to swallow his pride. He began to think to himself, you know, even my father, he has servants who are eating better than me. Like even the lowest servant in my father's house, he has enough food to eat. I bet if I went back, I could, I could beg my father to just let me work for him. He doesn't even have to take me back. I don't have to starve here. I'll take any job he can offer. And so he began to make his way back home. He left behind that foreign land. And as he was walking that long journey back home, he began to formulate in his mind what he would say to his father, what his speech would be. He rehearsed the speech over and over in his mind. He said, I'll tell him, Dad, I did a horrible thing. I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm never, not even worthy to be called your son. I never should have told you that you were dead to me. But please, please, can I ha be one of your servants? I'll take any job. He rehearsed the speech over and over in his mind, his heart racing as he got closer to his father's home. But while he was still a distance away, he saw something. He saw movement. It looked, it looked like a person was running. He began to pick up his pace, and, and soon enough, his eyes widened in amazement. It was his father. His father was running toward him. Now, what you might not understand is that it was culturally unacceptable and shameful for a man of his age and his stature to be running. And so the youngest son, he began to make his way closer to his father, and it clicked. For his father to be running to him, he would have been waiting. He would have been watching. And so he ran to his father. His father ran to him, and he wrapped him in the biggest bear hug you've ever seen. The son began to stutter out his speech. Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But his father didn't care. Wasn't even really listening. He put his arm around his son and he began calling out to the servants. Get a fresh pair of clothes. Get some fresh shoes. You know that fattened calf that we've been saving for a special occasion? This is that special occasion. Go, kill that fattened calf because tonight we're having a barbecue. My son, who was dead, is now alive. He was lost, but now he is found. And a party began. His oldest son, who had stayed behind, who had obeyed, who had been faithful, who had worked with his father, he was still out in the field. And when he came in, he started to hear the music. He started to smell the food. That's weird, he thought to himself. It's not a festival. There's no feast scheduled for today. What's going on? So he called out to one of his father's servants. And the servant started to fill him in on what had happened. Your brother is back, the servant replied. Your father, he killed the fattened calf and he threw a party because your brother, he's back, he's alive and well. But when he heard this, the older brother was filled with rage. The bitterness that he had felt towards his brother began to consume him. His brother had wasted part of his father's fortune. He had wasted his possessions, his land. He broke his father's heart and left him to pick up the pieces. He refused to go in. 
He refused to celebrate someone who had recklessly caused so much pain and heartache. And so the father came and sat with him. What you might miss in this is that culturally speaking, what the oldest son did had been shaming the father. By not obeying him and going into the party, the father had every right to beat him into submission. But that's not what the father did. Instead, he went to the son and began to plead with him to come to join the party to celebrate. I will not celebrate him. Your son, the one who told you that you were as good as dead, I will not celebrate him after what he did, how he shamed us and left us. Son, his father said, please, Come in and celebrate with us. Your brother is alive. Isn't that worth celebrating? But why, his son replied, anger and disappointment emanating off of his face. I have stayed with you. I have worked for you. I have done everything you asked. But I never got a party. I never even got a small goat to celebrate with my friends. I just don't get it. Why are you celebrating him after everything he's done? His father sighed. You have always been with me. Day in and day out, we get to be together. Everything I have is yours. But we must celebrate and be glad. For your brother was once dead and is now alive. And I know Jesus doesn't say this, but in my mind, I can hear the father saying to his oldest son, don't you understand? I would have run after you too. These stories communicate powerful truths about God, his nature, and his love. First, these stories show us that even when we're lost, God views us as valuable. And each story, something was lost, a sheep, a coin, and a son. In Jesus' first story, the shepherd leaves his herd to search for that one sheep that was lost. In his second story, Jesus tells of a woman who has lost a coin, a whole day's pay, and how she turns her house upside down in order to find it. And finally, Jesus tells of a father who waited, watched, and then ran to embrace his lost son. In each story, what was lost was so valuable that someone in the story was actively searching, hoping to find what was lost. And when we feel lost, it can be hard to see ourselves as worth anything. But Jesus is trying to tell us that to our heavenly Father, even when we have walked away from him, he sees our value. To him, we are so valuable. And there's so much value in these that when the, what is lost is found, there is rejoicing. When that shepherd returned with the lost sheep, he called to his friend saying, rejoice with me. And when the woman found her lost coin, she called out to her neighbors, come rejoice with me. And when the son returns to the father, he throws a great party of rejoicing. Even when we are lost, God views us as valuable. And when we turn to him, when we're found, Heaven rejoices. 
But what is it that makes us feel lost in the first place? See, even though God views us as valuable, so many of us feel lost because we're running from God. In our third story, we find the younger son, often called the prodigal son, running from his father. He actively rejects his father. He sells his inheritance, and he basically tells his dad that you're as good as dead to me. The younger son severs the relationship that he had with his father. He wants to do life his own way. He doesn't want to be told what to do. He doesn't care if that means that he doesn't get to be with his dad. And as it turned out, however, living that life ended up leaving him hungry, alone, and destitute. He was so lost. Using a map that he thought would lead him to happiness, but instead left him in the gutter. For us, too, we find ourselves wanting to do life our own way. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told how to live our own lives. We see this map that the world offers, a way to fulfillment, to happiness, to pleasure, and so we run from God. We sever that relationship so that we can be in control and live our own lives. We're chasing something, always running towards something. But the difference between those who are lost and those who are found is what they're running toward. What are you chasing after? We can chase after so many things, but the reality is that a life apart from our Heavenly Father, it's not what we were designed for, and it always leaves us feeling lost. But when you feel lost, remember this. God is running after you. He is pursuing you with a relentless, reckless, perfect love. Take a moment and let that sink in. So often we have this picture of God in our mind as, as the celestial judge waiting for us to mess up so that he can smite us. But Jesus is telling us here that, that God is more like this loving father, a father who was waiting every day for his son to stop throwing his life away. What we sometimes miss in this story is for how the father to be running after his son, he would have been waiting, watching, every day, looking out the window, down the driveway, down the street, waiting for his son to stop throwing his life away, waiting for the son that had broken his heart to come back. And to add to that, he didn't even wait for his son to make it all the way back. How many of us, if we were in the father's place, would have been waiting for that son to come to, come to us on his knees begging for forgiveness? But that's not how our heavenly father operates. He ran to his son. The God the father is so eager, so filled with longing for his lost children to return that not only does he wait and watch and anticipate, but he runs after them. He runs. The audience to Jesus' story would have seen the father doing something culturally unacceptable. They would have realized that the father was, was ditching his dignity to run after the son who had embarrassed him, who had shamed him, who told him he was as good as dead to him and only worth his possessions and the money that he had to offer. But this, this is our God. Our God ditches dignity, social norms, our own rejection of him, and he runs after us. He runs after you. 
And as soon as we realize that we've been wasting our lives chasing after maps that lead nowhere, as soon as we turn around and start making our way back to him, he doesn't even wait for us to make it all the way back. He runs after us. In Jesus' first two stories, he illustrates the value of what is lost and the joy that heaven experiences when a sinner is found. But in this last story, Jesus adds this extra layer to communicate something to the crowd around him. It's easy for us to see how the prodigal son, how the younger son ran from his father. But the older brother, he was a little bit lost as well. I mean, he may have stayed with the father. He may have been obedient, working beside him in the field. He may have been the better son, especially compared to his younger brother. But when his brother came back, and was celebrated with this great feast, the older brother refused to go in. You see, he harbored resentment towards his brother. Resentment at how he left his father, how he wasted his money. And that resentment, it grew inside of him until it led him to refuse to rejoice and to celebrate. And what we often miss in this story is that by refusing to enter the party, the older son was disobeying his father. See, Jesus' audience would have recognized this. They would have known that the father could have beaten him into submission. But by refusing to come in and rejoice that his brother had been found, he let his own resentment drive a wedge, not only between his relationship with his brother, but also his relationship with his father. For many of us, especially those of us who have been raised in church, our struggle might not be an outright rejection of our heavenly father. But when we let bitterness and resentment toward other people take root in our hearts, that bitterness, that resentment, that why should we celebrate him after everything he's done? When it takes root in our lives, it, re it affects not only our relationships with other people, but also our relationship with God. When his son is consumed with bitterness and resentment, the father reminds him of an important truth. He was with him day after day. His presence, his love, his support, that was the real prize. Because to be found is to be in a relationship with God. Let me repeat that for you. To be found is to be in a relationship with God. So whether you find yourself lost because you've been running from God, or because you've let that resentment towards another person drive a wedge in your relationship with your heavenly father. Remember this, God sees you as valuable. God's love is running after you. And to be found is to be in a relationship with God. As our time together draws to a close, I want you to take a moment to consider your own life. Have you been feeling lost? Have you been using some map that's been letting you down, leading you to a dead end? Have you been actively running from God? Or do you find that you've been harboring bitterness towards someone and it's been affecting your relationship? Have you been harboring bitterness towards someone that's caused a rift in your relationship, not only with them, but also with your heavenly father? To close our time today, we're going to sing a song about God's love. And as we sing, my hope is that you'll soak in these lyrics. 
as we start a new year, let's go into it remembering the love of our Heavenly Father, a love that watches and waits, a love that runs and embraces, a love that patiently entreats, a love that moves us from lost to found. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your love, the way that you chase after us, the way that you embrace us. And Lord, I pray that in this moment that you'll speak to each heart what we need to hear. Draw us closer to you. Remind us of your all-encompassing love, not just this morning, but as we go throughout our week and, our mo and this month and this year, Lord, that it will be a year where we remember how powerful and amazing and relentless and reckless your love is. Is in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.
There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. displayed in this story is the same love that follows after you. And as we start off this year, to be a year where we remember that love of God everywhere we go and everything we do, go in peace.